says nothing to do with it, but I just have to, this is the thing that's fascinating throughout the Christmas season. There's a new game out there called the Little Drummer Game. Has anybody heard about this one? Can I get a what, what? Okay, the Little Drummer Game is how long you can make it through the Christmas season without hearing any rendition at all of Little Drummer Boy, whether it be you know, your David Bowie, any other thing. And I, I was in a restaurant the other day doing some work and, uh, you know, I was like, told Kelly, I was like, it's gonna, I'm gonna lose right here. And, and I made it through <laughs> well. So have you all heard Little Drummer Boy yet this season? Played in public or anywhere? No? Some of you have? Okay, the rest of the way on Christmas, this is it. I'm gonna, might even ask again next week for fun and kicks and giggles and stuff. But I've made it this far and I feel like it's the greatest accomplishment of my life. You know, we're talking about Christmas. Another thing related to that, as I was listening to songs, and I'm very cognizant of this in my Spotify playlist, and I am a plebe, which means I'm not like some of you who have like gone commercial free on Spotify, like I still do the free version, so I get the very loud commercial every about four or five songs. But this week, one of the loud commercials, it kept saying, honey, you know, like, have we sent out our holiday cards? And they're like, well, I haven't sent out the holiday cards yet. And they kept saying the word holiday cards over and over and over again. And I don't even know what the commercial was for now on the back end of it because I was so enamored with the idea that they kept saying holiday cards because I don't know who you are or what religious persuasion that you have, but I just don't know anybody who that actually calls it holiday cards. They call them Christmas cards. And it makes me think about my enlistment in the war on Christmas that currently exists. And I'm here to draft you all into the fray, too. You know, we talked, uh, maybe this came to the light a few years ago, uh, with conversations about Starbucks, because Starbucks removed Merry Christmas or whatever from the tree. But I always found it ironic that, yet at the same time, cross, uh, I almost say, I, I said, almost said, crossroads and exchangeable for Starbucks. That was Freudian at multiple levels. All of us small church people are having a laugh over that. We're like, oh, that's not uncomfortable. I don't even know how that happened here. You're drawing your own conclusions. They love the Lord. They're worshiping today. Uh, their old church is cooler than all our old church, though. So, um, and boy, get this, this is off the rails. If you should still be doing announcements. It would be great right now. They sell a Christmas blend anyway. So somebody's like, can you believe they took Christmas out? Like, no, but they've just marketed it much better than we really want it to be. But when it comes down to these types of issues where people are like, why can't we say Merry Christmas? And, and actually, I'm still greeted just as much by Merry Christmas. And I don't know if it's like some subversive, you know, checkout person who's like, I will keep this until, you know, I, I lose everything else. But why is there such a conversation about it? It's because as a broader society, even though Christianity had reigned supreme in the United States for the longest time, even as it slips away, there's a desire for inclusivity. There's a desire to make sure that people who don't believe as we do aren't offended because they have different practices and such. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you personally, I'm fine with this because I think just the fact is that I see, and, and through social media, it's wonderful to be able to have this uh, reminder, but to see how there are followers of Jesus all over the world who live in societies where other religions trump their own to the extent that if they observe it somehow, it can be even violent. This, just a few days ago, there's a, um, a person I've met through ministry over who has a ministry in central India, and he put these pictures from this week of two Christian people in India who were beaten 
because they follow Jesus. And friends, as much as there's, you know, I think this is the fear of people who have the war on Christmas. They're like, no, this is going to be a beachhead that we hold to ensure that, that, that Christmas is always observed and we have the right to do that as people with faith. I, I look at this and I'm like, maybe my perspective is just misguided. There's a bigger world out there that, that takes precedence over my small view And during this Christmas season, we're doing a series around the manger, and we're taking a look at people who actually came to see the baby Jesus. And this morning, what we want to look at is another group of people. We're going to examine the wise men and see how um, this concept of inclusivity actually comes together here. So we're in We're in Matthew chapter 2. Dylan, did you hand the microphone of power off to somebody? If not, why don't you read for us today, man? Like, you're like, I'm not going to talk as much today. No, it's going to be the Dylan show. And we are all willing participants in how this works out. It's great stuff, brother. The problem is, is I've given you another thing to do, so you have to do it. What page is it in the Blue Bible, if you have that? Somebody? 681, if you're in the Blue Bible. Matthew chapter 2. Dylan, when you get there, will you read verses 1 and 2 for us this morning, please? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So as we're stopping saying Merry Christmas, let's just ruin Christmas altogether as we go and pale layers behind the Christmas story. Because we mentioned last week that Jesus probably wasn't born around late December. Actually, there was a pagan holiday that the Christians kind of co-opted in order you know, to have a festival that rivaled that. So it was usually coincided with the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. So you know, probably, you know, we think because of where the shepherds were, it was probably like March or so. So you know, I think I would love to push Christmas back because I think it would make winter shorter, but that's just me. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm for like a February 10th Christmas, but I might be, you know, when I'm president. Okay, so here's the thing too, is then obviously as we're looking at this, uh, th- that scene that we usually have with the shepherd there and the wise men, they weren't there at the same time. And we'll, we'll talk about this later, uh, why we know this, but the scene here is, is the, the hometown of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, in Bethlehem. Just a, we talked about this last week. Just a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. And as these magi come in, they come from the east and interact with a guy named Herod the Great. And I always like to pull this up because we have to understand is that as much as our faith is about the believing of what we cannot see, we have a lot of historical documents and proof of the life of Herod and a little bit about the profile of him. To to as much one Christmas uh, years ago, I actually did an entire sermon on Herod because there's so much about him. And, and, And just the short on him is that he was a diabolical leader. And he was picked by Rome... To, to rule over Judea, which was one of the key places in Palestine. It was an important trade route. And he was picked even though he wasn't a full-blooded Jewish person. He was actually half-breed. And if you know anything about the Bible, it's these half-breeds. The Samaritans were of that ilk. They were always even looked worse by Jews. They would rather you not even have any Jewish in you than to be a half-breed. And as a result of that and his anger issues, he, he was not a beloved character. 
And it's very interesting is that he always tried to, you know, bring those people closer because the temple in which Jesus worshipped was repaired by Herod and made one of the most beautiful structures that the world had ever seen at that point, and they still hated Herod. But he is approached by these folk, the Magi, as the scripture calls them here. And again, we commonly refer to them as wise men, but what was their background. Who were they? And, you know, we'll get to, you know, breaking down the mythology too, and you've probably heard this. We don't know if there were three of these folk. We have no idea how many there were. We just always assume there as much as three, and then we, you know, we Christian folk like triads, so it makes it really easily, right? So there's this idea that they come from the east, which was probably near modern-day Iran, and they make this travel to come and see this baby that they had never met. Their background, as we can see implied to the text, because they are looking to the stars, would have been astrologers. And I don't know how you feel about astrologers in general. Maybe you don't even come into contact with them. I think for some of us more, I was going to say mature, but just old people, maybe you remember our friend Miss Cleo. There used to be these things called 1-800-1900 numbers where you would be able to call in and they would charge you for how long you were on the phone. And you had people who would prognosticate what would happen. So usually today when we think astrologer, we think of somebody like this who was just meddling in affairs, just trying to make predictions to swindle people, but actually in the east where the Magi came from, they would have been viewed as learned people. And recognized too is that it was less mumbo-jumbo, but more of an actual uh, astronomy examination of the heavens. Because we know the ancients were doing this for thousands of thousands of years, that they tried to make sense of the universe, they looked to the stars, and they would chart their courses to see how they worked and moved, and that's why when a mysterious star appears that they have nothing on record for, they are compelled to follow it. And then somewhere in here, we know that there's some sort of special revelation so that they don't just see the star, but there's an association that this star brings significance to the Jewish people. So they come into town and go to Herod and say, there is a king of the Jews that's born. We want to go see him. And I would tell you about this view of the Magi then. I think it's something that we have to come to grips with because sometimes Christians have absolute disdain for people who are not. And even if they have strong beliefs about life, and faith, we want to dismiss them easily. But I would say right here, the introduction of the Magi should make us look at this because God used pagan worship to bring pagans to see his son. I mean, that's insane. But recognize that God has used pagan worship as a means by which to allow pagans to see his son throughout history. I think about a guy that I met just a few years ago. His name was Nabil Kuresh, and I, I think I mispronounced his name. His name's Nabil Kureshi, and um, he was about my age, and he was born and raised a, a devout Muslim. So he spent his, his developmental years in the Torah, and it wasn't, or in the Torah, in the Quran, and until he actually went to college, he had never spent time with a Christian, and sure enough, he was paired with a Christian roommate. 
And as much as they started talking about religion and faith, the Christians said, hey, I'll agree. You just show me, you know, the Quran and we'll have, we'll read along that. And I just want you to have a chance to read the scriptures. And for the first few years of that relationship, Nabil was incredibly critical of everything that the, the Bible said that seemed to counteract the Quran. But the more that he looked at its historicity and the more that he explored certain text, it came to the point where he decided that, you know, really he was mistaken and Jesus was the way. And as a result, Nabil became a follower of Jesus and spent the rest of his life, and I say the rest of his life, he just died a few months ago of cancer, but he spent the rest of his life talking about how Muslims can try to see Jesus through what God had done through the Quran. And again, it's not like the linear pathway that many of us see, but there's this recognition to understand is that all truth is God's truth. And as such, when we look at people from other faiths, instead of seeing disdain, can we not take the time to perhaps help them see where Jesus exists within their faith structure? It's there. It's something to consider. Dylan, let's go ahead and read on here. I'm going to go verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the mission that the Magi have been given by God is to find the king of the Jews. And where do they go to find the king of the Jews? They go to the king of the Jews. And then they say, where's the king of the Jews who has just been born? Now what's interesting about this is that as a megalomaniac, you can imagine Herod's reaction. He's probably trying to play it cool, but at the same time he's seething because he has no idea what they're talking about. He even has, has, is, is so beyond his comprehension that he goes to the religious leaders and says, listen, these guys have come from away asking me where the king of the Jews is to be born. What's this about? And they respond very simply, oh yeah, it's in the Bible. It's from the prophet Micah. And they tell him this, text, this scripture. It's, it, he's be, to be born in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Which again, shows you Herod's position when it came to faith. Because there was this prophecy that apparently every good Jewish person know, knows and yet as the king of the Jews, when they come to him, he has absolutely no idea where this is supposed to happen. And it's very interesting then, because through this process, we get this idea that like finding baby Jesus is the where's Waldo of the ancient world, right? Like, how do you find him? Well, open the book and look really closely, and the guy juggling, he's right behind him very, you know. You have to understand is that what's funny here is that we think it was this this spiritually, uh, this moving of God to try to make sure that Jesus wasn't discovered, but the reality was is all the signs expose the idea that Jesus was to be born, the Messiah, in Bethlehem. And it's interesting because even though Herod might not have known the prophecy, he should have had at least heard about it because 
Herod, and we talk about knowing a little bit about him, he had constructed palaces all over Palestine. And and one of his most impressive ones, Kelly and I went here in 2005 when we were in Israel, is called the Herodian. And I don't know if you can see from the top, but there's there's this hill, and then on top of it stood this, this like castle structure. And it's fascinating because the hill did not exist when Herod showed up to the scene. Basically, he built a mountain from which he built a palace on top of. And when you stand on the top of the Herodian, the, the nearest town located to the Herodian is Bethlehem right here. The Church of the Nativity is which is supposed to be the cave area where Jesus was actually born. So, you know, right, and, and it's interesting too because during this time of year, if it was March, there's this idea that Herod could have even had been at the Herodian recently, perhaps even when the shepherds received the announcement that Jesus was born just in the nearby town. It was right within his view, and he was oblivious to the entire fact. It's kind of funny, right, that, that, that the king of the Jews who feared the birth of the new king of the Jews, it was under his nose for everyone to see. What's fun, because, you know, you, whenever you get a chance to, to, to make fun of, like, a really bad person, it's just exciting, right? Like, I, I have a good time. You're like, Herod is such an idiot. But we can't stop there. Because at the same time, who does Herod ask then about the birth of Jesus? He asks his religious leaders, hey, where's Jesus supposed to be born? And they do not hesitate. This is interesting because, again, we, we know that the wise men weren't on the scene the same time of Herod, at the same time as the shepherds. The wise men weren't on the scene as the same time as the shepherds. And the reason we know that is because in Luke chapter 2, we read what happens immediately after the birth of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2, it outlines this process that historically stood true, is that on the eighth day, a child was, a male child was to be circumcised. And in the first century, this was done at the temple. Just a two-hour walk. So Mary, and God bless her, a two-hour walk after giving birth. I mean, she's the woman. Let's just leave that there. But she heads there. And we, again, we know this, Luke chapter 2. When the time it came for the purification rite required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him at the temple. Do you remember that story of what happens at the temple? Jesus is presented, and people are like, hey, hey, what kind of baby you got there? That baby looks important. And we have two older people in the temple who were there for the longest time. We have Simeon and Anna who see the baby and they start to prophesy, prophesy over the greatness of the child, right? Now, again, these are two people who had spent their whole lives at the temple. They were temple staples, right? People think they came with the building. So it's very interesting is that who did Herod reach out to to find out about Jesus? He reached out to the religious leaders who would have been in Jerusalem at the time, who would have been at the temple, So what's funny is that as the Magi roll in, I would tell you that it's very likely that the religious leaders who suggested that the king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem knew very well that there was a special baby that just came from Bethlehem that they were aware to. So why didn't they connect the dots? Well, in the heart of hearts, you want to say, well, because they they wanted to protect the baby Jesus from Herod. And what we see and everything else they do throughout the Bible, that wasn't true. Because they spent their lives trying to critique him because they were fear, or they were feared. They, they were afraid that he would upset the balance of power. So I would tell you is that truly, if they had known he was going to be born, instead of just telling Herod because they knew what he would eventually do, 
What would they have, you know, what would have been the natural reaction? To beat them to Bethlehem, to hide the child, to make sure that the baby was safe. But what do we have? Just a bunch of ignorance that surrounds the whole scene. It's very interesting because that ignorance, I think, permeates every aspect of faith. If you're looking at the Jewish leaders, they knew the prophecy. Why weren't they ready? If I'm going to cut them from slack, I'll tell you this. I think it's because it had been 400 years since they heard anything from God. So what happened? They just tuned out. They were tired of waiting. And they thought this is just how life would be. It's very interesting throughout the scriptures, we're told that we should be careful on, uh, to not drop our guard, that we ought to be fully aware of what God is doing at every moment and every opportunity. Jesus grows up and says, Matthew 25, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. I would tell you that perhaps it was, you know, I don't think it was, was um, mischievous. I just think it just came down to is that they stopped waiting and looking and they tried to live life without God's deliverance. Oh, but it come. It had come. Dylan, verses 7 through 12, please. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star, and the star they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And if you go on in the following verses, and I think most of us know this story, is that in anger, Herod then proceeds to kill all the young children in Bethlehem. And it's called the, the Massacre of the Innocents, and people have tried to figure out how many this would have been, and it probably wasn't a massive number, which is why it doesn't rank historically, but it was probably a couple dozen, like 20 to 30 kids that Herod kills. And I've actually preached an entire sermon on that, so I just don't want to go there right now within our conversation about the Magi, but look at this, is that Herod goes and tells them, he's like, hey, you know, let's, you go, tell me where he is, and then we'll worship him together. And maybe that's one of the reasons that the um, religious leaders of the day were a little hesitant to act at all. Because they might have heard, hey, if, if Herod, who's a horrible person, wants to go worship a Jew, it, it's not a good action. Jews did not worship human beings. The Torah forbade that. Humans were not to be worshipped. And maybe when they heard the king was going to do that, they're like, this is just crazy town. Let's stay as far away as possible because, you know, this is just messed up. But he tells them, you know, go there. And it's interesting then when the Magi do discover the baby, they do worship him. 
Now, for the pagans, this was not such a foreign concept because in, in the first century, pagans had no issues about worshiping other human beings. And actually, it, Rome, the entire society at the time, was structured on the rule of an emperor, and the emperor was deity himself. So Caesar Augustus, who we hear about, was not just the, the emperor at the time, but people would actually worship him. So it, it wasn't beyond belief, but still, for Mary and Joseph to be with their baby and to have these people that they've never met from the east so they didn't look like them, to have them worship their child, you know, in isolation, that just would have been messed up. But I think when you start off with the narrative of what happened with the shepherds and what happened at the temple, here just a month or so into this child's life, they're starting to see is like, this is no ordinary kid. There's something special about this baby. So what's interesting is that as they worship him, they don't just worship, but they give him gifts, right? And again, here we have the commercialization of Christmas beginning in our very midst. Now, what we like to do about this is we, we always want to look at the nature of the gifts and try to say, why did the Bible tell us it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And there's been a lot written about that, right? The idea that gold was, was a valuable material and that would have represented royalty. And then frankincense would have, was something that you presented at the temple. So it was this concept of Jesus' deity. And then the myrrh was actually used to prepare bodies for death. So this was like the foreshadowing of what would come. And I'm going to tell you is that as much as that could be it we just don't know right like it wraps up really nicely I used to have a seminary professor who when you would say like hey this happened in the bible does that mean this and this and this and he said well at least that'll preach his meaning is is that it might not be true but you could say it in the pulpit and people would be like ah I have no idea if that's true I'm not going to rest my laurels on this can I tell you the one thing that happens then after this is as we say Herod goes full-on Herod and he decides to kill all the babies in the town. So as Mary and Joseph are there in Bethlehem, Joseph is warned in a dream to say, he said, get out of Dodge, go away. They flee all the way to Egypt. And here's the thing. If you and I were to make that flight today, you might be like, hey, have credit card, we'll travel, right? Like, you know, it would be uncomfortable, but at least I could put that stuff on the Amex, and when I'm done, we could t- figure to pay that off. <laughs> Mary and Joseph were far away from their hometown of Nazareth. They had very limited supplies. And the idea that even if they had family there is probably they were warned to get out because of what would happen. They probably just left incredibly quickly. And think about it, in addition to the baby and maybe if that donkey was still hanging out there, what what are they probably grabbing along the way? The gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. Why? Because they could be traded. Because basically, the Magi gave them, you know, a check. You know, it's like your baby is born instead of the Target gift card. I'm going to give you some money, some opportunity. And what that opportunity displayed then was the path by which God was able to allow the parents of Jesus to flee to Egypt and stay for a time, even though work would have been limited, finances would have been limited. He uses the Magi to finance their next years until Herod dies and they can safely return. I think that's an interesting story too, not the the angle that we usually go through, but when I look at that, if I'm just saying is that the, you know, the, the Magi were called to go from Iran to Palestine to fund Mary and Joseph so they could survive a few years until Herod died, that's a different story than we usually look at. But I, I like that explanation more because then if not, riddle me this, why Magi at all? Again, I think it's one of the reasons like we call them wise men. 
it's funny as I don't even, I haven't really examined where we get that narrative from, but, but it might have just been, as many things happen, poor KJV translation. I need to look into that. I should have before we got to this moment, but I'm telling you is that these, they weren't necessarily wise, and one could argue is that if they were astrologers trying to make sense of the world by staring into the stars, they were actually pretty stupid. So what is the point of this? And I would say is that, hey, me talking about them, you know, being the financial means, the, 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 the bank here, that sounds a little nice too. But I would say is let's step back and look at who's around the manger and ask ourselves why they're there. Last week we talked about the shepherds. The shepherds had a valuable role to play in Jewish society, but they were the forgotten. They were the lowly. We talked sometimes they were imprisoned. They were the overlooked people among the Jews, and yet they were the first people that God invited to come to see his son. Then I find it fascinating that that next group to be invited aren't even Jewish at all. And they're not even worshipers of the one God. They're astrologers that God calls from afar with a star to come see his son And I would say the fact that they were invited, or the reason that they were invited, could very well just be because they were pagans, because they didn't believe at all. We don't hear about them at all. There's there's a lot of early church history that tries to explain like who they were, and we do know that Christian communities ended up popping there and popping up in that area in the Iran Iraq area in the first century. And there's some people who say, well, it might have been because they had the seeds for belief in the one God. We just don't know. But here's the thing that I do know about this. And I think it's important, especially as we, as we fight the war on Christmas to defend Jesus at all costs from the pagans, is that it's the opposite of that because who God calls to the manger are the pagans in the first place. He bids them come. Even though they don't have the right theology, even though they're not from the right location, he says, meet my son who will change the world I think that's what we need to understand about that. Christmas, as much as it's this nostalgic aspect for those followers of Jesus, for us, it's not for us. Christmas is not for us. Christmas is for everybody. Really, why is that so important? Because Jesus is for everyone. Friends, Jesus is for everyone. That's why this is so important. So as we go through the season, I don't care if it's a menorah or a garb of Kwanzaa that somebody is sporting. I, I, I don't worry about where people are now. I want to contemplate where they could be in Christ. And that'll never happen unless we, as his true followers, understand the manger in the first place. I love that just decades after his death, the Apostle Paul is able to summarize why Jesus came. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, we see that Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
Again, everything we do with the birth of Jesus must result in explaining his death. Because this is the trajectory of the baby. The warm feelings that we have quickly evaporate when we think of his death on the cross. And even though that's horrible, I take solace in the fact that that death was not futile, but it was for all. Jesus died for all. He's worthy of our worship. But the Lord bids all humanity spread across the world, regardless of who they are, to come worship him. And as much as we want to be invested in that, friends, it, it has to begin with my worship of him. So again, we, I love this time of year because uh, Dylan and I have this conversation. He's like, hey, where's communion going to be? I was like, oh, it's going to be at the end of the sermon. Because I think there's no better display of worship for us to look at the manger and to see the destination and the path. Friends, the baby came to die for all. As we commune, as we take the bread and the cup, we just use this opportunity to remember the manger. We're gonna, I'm going to pray. We'll commune. If you're a follower of Jesus, as we pass around the trays, please partake as you would. Let's worship the newborn king. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thanks for the humility that you put before us. Thank you for calling astrologers from the Middle East, from far away, to talk with a megalomaniac to determine where your baby would be born. And as we look into that story, Father, as we get deeper into it, it just brings us lots of pain because we, we see the, the death of innocent children. We see lives just turned and upended. It's, it, 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 we see the destination of the baby, that Jesus was born to die for our sins. But Father, a, gl a glimmer of hope that we are able to see is that this death not only removes our sins, but he, it, it unites all humanity. So that our brothers and sisters of India who are persecuted can stand firm for you. So that we, when talking with our Jewish friends, have a perspective that Jesus died for them. So humble us as we worship you. And as we commune, we're reminded of that. That as we eat and drink the bread and the cup, it reflects our sinfulness. Thank you for forgiving our sins. We repent before you. But we give you praise for how you bring us home. All because of this baby. We give you praise, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.